G'day mate, Forty here. I know what you're thinking right now. How is this live stream different from all other live streams? There are so many distant right live streams. There are so many dissident live streams, period. How the heck is this particular live stream different from all the other live streams going on? Like, why should you watch this one? What makes it different? And to the extent, right, to the extent that I am offering something, Right, to the extent that what I'm doing has some value. Why? What's the basis for it? Why is this stream different from all other live streams? And here's the difference between this live stream and every other distant live stream of which I'm aware is that I come from a place of gratitude and joy and happiness and appreciation for people who've been kind to me, appreciation for people who've loved me, appreciation for people who've given me opportunities, Appreciation for people who've gone out of their way to help me. Appreciation for people who have extended themselves to me. I, I come from a place of, of gratitude. I, I know that sounds incredibly corny, but just think about every other pretty much distant live streamer of which you're, you're aware. Right? They all come from primarily a place of victimhood and rage and resentment that the world has screwed them over the Lord has taken from them things to which they are entitled. They have had their careers crushed by shadowy figures or obvious figures in power that uh, no matter what they do, it won't matter because the, the evil forces that they're going up against, they're just too extreme that uh, they'll, they'll never be after overcome. That you know, They might as well not do anything. It's just exceptionally brave of them. To, to do you know even even this this small live stream right that's that's where they're coming from it's like oh you know i was screwed over by my ex-wives i was screwed over by the police i was screwed over by my employers i've been screwed over by my family i've been screwed over by my life circumstances i've been screwed over by this neoliberal system i've been screwed over by america america promises the dream that America does not deliver on the dream that it promises. Where is my share of the American dream? It's this this rage, this resentment, this this burden that uh, pretty much every other distant li right, live streamer carries with them. And these people are frequently smarter than I am. They're frequently more eloquent than I am. They're frequently more exciting to listen to. They're frequently more compelling. They are more entertaining. Right? They are more proficient at the skill of live streaming. They understand your pain. They share your pain. They're going to fight for you against the elites. Right? They're going to go to battle for you. They're going to hail victory on your behalf. Right? They've got this grandiose romantic vision. Oh, also, most other distant live streamers of which I'm aware are romantic. So they think that one individual against the system can perhaps set things right. But the neoliberal system with its committees, with its bureaucracies, 
with its tenure processes, with its peer review systems, with its its government reports. All right, you, you can't rely on on the mainstream media to get at the truth. You can't rely on our legal system to get at the truth. You can't rely on government that you know all the elites are are against you. That they're all trying to screw you over. But me, I'm I'm on your side. That that's kind of the that's kind of the gig that they that they they give up, and so they come from this place of rage and resentment, and it's it's palpable, and you see how it affects their worldview. Like I come to you and I say, "Wow, we've got a lot of really good things going on in our society, in our lives, with our families, with our, with our opportunities, with work, with with making money, with." With building something in a community, with with volunteering, and they come from a place ah, oh, you know, the odds are just so stacked against us. This system is just so rotten. We just have to burn everything down. Because if if there was any fairness in this world, I'd have my own show on Fox News. I'd be a paid commentator on ABC. Instead, I, I'm stuck here trying to find. You know, some live streaming outlet for my, my thoughts, which the, the system finds so dangerous, so subversive that they're just trying to crush me. And if you'll just hit hit up my Patreon, I'll continue the fight on your behalf. I'll take the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune to protect you because I'm fighting for you, the little guy, against this these shadowy, nasty global elites who are trying to screw us over at every time. And we need to essentially just burn down the whole system because it's just so irredeemably corrupt. Right, that's the that's the ethos that that uh, I, I tend to detect from almost every other distant right live streamer, and then that just feeds through in the way they view the world. Luke, you are Jewish in about the same way that George Santos is Jewish. Oh boy! So somehow people think that this is like a really killer diss that I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be shocked. I'm going to be hurt. I'm going to be appalled. I'm going to be knocked back. I'm going to be intimidated. I'm going to be diminished. I'm going to feel demeaned. I'm going to feel ashamed. I'm going to you know, be rocketed back to reality when the 1,073rd guy comes in. Hey, I don't believe you're Jewish. Well, it doesn't really matter what you think. right? What matters is what my fellow Orthodox Jews think. And when I go to an Orthodox synagogue in Australia, in Los Angeles, in San Francisco, as I make my journeys around the world, uh, Montreal, England, I count in a minion. I have all the same privileges as every other Jew. So you can't point out any single area where I'm not counted as Jewish. I get set up on dates with Jewish women. I am asked to take on roles in the community. Right? I am entrusted with uh, confidential information about what, what's going on in the community. Now, I'm enlisted to uh, help in, in this area or that area. So, yeah, 1,073, you know, distance. Oh, we're going to dis Luke. You're not really Jewish. But you can't name any particular area where I'm not counted as Jewish in the Orthodox Jewish community. So it doesn't really matter what you, know, you think. <laughs> it's like it doesn't affect my happiness. Like you can believe that uh, salvation is only through Jesus Christ. You can believe that you can believe in QAnon. You can believe in the English cricket team. It, it doesn't really matter. What matters is the people that I primarily spend my spend time with, my religious community, and there, there's no problem, right? What can you name 
in Orthodox Jewish life that uh, I don't get to participate in because I'm not Jewish. Like, what uh, privileges are taken from me? How am I restricted? You know, how am I demeaned? Like, how am I mistreated? Like, uh, people just, like, laughing behind my back any more than they laugh or comment at other people behind their back. So, when you come at the news from a place of gratitude, your immediate response is, let's burn everything down. Let's just tear everything down. And so that's the response primarily on uh, pretty much every other live stream. I haven't been given what's owed to me. I've been screwed over by the system. I've been screwed over by life. I've been screwed over by America. And here's just another example of how our elites are corrupt. Here's just another example of how people like you and me are being screwed over by the system. So there's this rage, resentment, a grandiose sense of entitlement, which seems to characterize almost every other dissident live streamer of, of which I'm aware like uh, vast overestimation of their own abilities, their own their wisdom to be able to detect what's really true through you know, all the BS that the globalist elites are trying to shove down our throat. And I come from a perspective, you know, I'm so grateful for the people who are kind to me. You know, I'm so grateful that even though we don't have a perfect law and order system, that it's better than nothing, that it's better than what I saw in India when I went through India. I'm grateful for the economic opportunities that are available to us. I'm grateful for the free speech opportunities. I'm grateful for Google and YouTube that's allowing us to communicate right now. I'm grateful for Rumble. I'm grateful for Odyssey. I'm grateful for Twitter. I'm grateful for Elon Musk taking over Twitter. And however imperfect he has been as the CEO of, of Twitter for all his you know, stupid tweets and stupid decisions, Twitter is a far more free place. Twitter is far better place than it was four months ago before it took over. So when I look at Elon Musk and Twitter, I primarily have a sense of gratitude, right? I don't judge Elon Musk against the perfect standard, right? Whenever you judge anyone against the perfect standard, they'll always fail, right? So I'm not nursing some grudge or resentment that, you know, oh, Elon Musk is just another billionaire who's going to screw us over. And, you know, look how he didn't intervene when Steve Saylor got suspended, right? Elon Musk is imperfect, Twitter remains an imperfect communication medium. It's far more free than it was four months ago. So I have a sense of gratitude for the extra freedom that Elon Musk has given to us. Ricardo says, I believe in that Waffle House white girl Christmas Day brawler. You didn't undergo an adolescence of sustained bullying. Yes, and you know what? I'm grateful for that. Because I was raised in private Christian schools and in the private Christian schools, which I attended, there wasn't very much bullying. And then I went to a public school in Auburn, California, where there was more bullying, but it wasn't horrible. It was just, you know, I was scared a little bit, but uh, it was just a moderate amount. And so I'm grateful for, for those opportunities, right? That, that I got to have a childhood free of sexual abuse, like free of, of hunger, uh, free of crime. Like, there was no crime around me. My parents didn't commit crimes. People we know weren't out there committing crimes. Uh, there wasn't like a whole bunch of nasty bullying. Right? There was, there's just so much to be grateful. And so I take that with me when I then look at the news. I don't immediately look at the news through the, the framework of, oh, here's how you know, people like me are getting screwed over. I'm not looking at the news through the framework of, oh, my father was in a position of religious authority, now I just instinctively hate everybody in authority. 
I don't look at the news primarily through the framework of, oh, my father abused his rhetorical abilities. Uh, my father uh, took advantage of his you know, religious authority. Therefore, I hate everyone with authority. You know, I hate anyone who's up there speaking down at me. I just hate them with a passion. Right? I'm able to recognize my father's a flawed human being who did many good things for me. And in some ways he sent me back. But I, I tried to keep my, my primary mode, my primary being centered around gratitude for the people who've been kind and good to me. And then looking out of the world, looking at the news from, from that perspective, not let's burn it all down because I am being given what's due to me. Ricardo says, I am so grateful for the propaganda put forth by the mainstream media. Okay. Well, where is it better? You think the mainstream media is better in Nigeria? Do you think it's better in Serbia? Do you think it's better in Japan or in China? Like, in what real world country do you think the mainstream media is so much better, right? That the mainstream media is flawed in the United States, but generally speaking, it's far more ethical than news media in Europe and England. So our system is flawed, our financial system, our political system, our media system, our academic system, our NGOs are all flawed. They're all dominated by leftists. I'm not aware of countries that are doing things a whole heck of a lot better. So I live in the world of reality. I'm not going to judge America against some standard of perfection that I have in my mind that is not replicated anywhere in the world, right? I judge America by what are the possibilities set forward by other countries. And if other countries aren't you know, providing just incredibly superior media or financial systems or political systems or academic systems, then I, I, I think... Uh, you know, I, I judge America on that relative basis. I am grateful for Luke Ford. Luke Ford made YouTube super fun. He prayed Luke. Luke is in line for a Lifetime Achievement Award. Look, David Cole, Ron Owens, Ron the Jewish Nazi neighbor. <laughs> Ricardo, you have a gift. Luke Ford, David Cole, and Ron Owens, Ron the Jewish Nazi neighbor, Mount Rushmore. Yes, I, I believe that we should talk to Nazis. And I believe that uh, we should just primarily look at them through the prism of Nazi, but, you know, understand where they're coming from, that uh, we should get out of this, like, essentializing uh, of people. Oh, this is a Jew, this is a black, this is a Nazi, this is a racist, this is a homophobe. Actually carry on a conversation. Sam Bankman-Fried has been chronically underbullied. Do we know that? Probably true if he grew up in the Stanford area, but w would he really be that much better off if he sustained a whole bunch of bullying. So Richard Spencer is a big fan of bullying. I'm not a fan of bullying. Now, I think mild, moderate forms of bullying can be appropriate, such as when you're trying to join an elite group. So there are many challenges, even a little bit of bullying when you convert to Orthodox Judaism. I'm sure there's a considerable amount of bullying when you try to join the Navy SEALs or any elite group. So a mild to moderate amount of bullying can be appropriate in some circumstances. No one has done more to humanize Norman Hobbes and his pals than Luke Ford. Yeah, Norman Hobbes is a human being. Norman Hobbes is polite. Norman Hobbes has always spoken to me like a gentleman. Uh, Norman Hobbes has been you know, a wonderful guest on this show. I mean, Norman Hobbes has, has been great. Like I'm, I'm appreciative for uh, for Norman, 
at the same time, you know, recognize that uh, he's a little out there in, in many areas. Also, Norman Hobbes is going through something that almost none of us are going through. I mean, the the medical challenges that that young man faces would would be discouraging, would be overwhelming for for many people. So, you know, Norman Hobbes is far more than just a quote unquote Nazi. Bullying is a crude lesson in real world consequences. Uh, bullying also kills people. Bullying also does you know, permanent trauma and damage to people. Uh, bullying is frequently unnecessary. So, yeah, I'm not like totally on board the, the bully train. I, I recognize, as, recognize that it, sometimes in some places it, it may be appropriate and do some good, but I'm not nearly the enthusiast when it comes to, to bullying that uh, Elliot Blatt is. So Richard Spencer was talking to Charles Johnson about Maggie Haberman's biography of Donald Trump, Confidence Man, which came out a few months ago. So they discussed the networks of the unhinged and foreign actors eager to use the QAnon, the alt-right, maggot, etc. Other than it's rather stupid. When I read that, my first thought was, I wonder if West so on, he was, goes, and of course, um, in my 20s, <laughs> it's it's just this extreme geopolitics. And then I, I kind of don't right, let's that start here. The, right. the world economy will go to Asia. That's not a terribly original prediction. Um, How would Luke Ford characterize the psychology of the bully? So I think there's adaptive bullying and maladaptive bullying. Sometimes bullying, you know, mildly, moderately, appropriately, depending on the situation, the circumstance, the group that you're bullying on the up of is is appropriate as a form of being a gatekeeper. So when you're an appropriate bully in an appropriate position as a gatekeeper and you're extending an appropriate amount of bullying, then it seems perfectly healthy to me. If it's a maladaptive amount of bullying, if it's a disproportionate amount of bullying, if it's not a bullying in a good cause, if it is bullying that does permanent unnecessary damage to people, then I would have to think that most bullies are unhappy people who want to make the rest of the world as unhappy as them. Because I remember that much of my life, I was unhappy. And when I was unhappy, I wanted everyone else essentially to be as unhappy as I was. I was just ready to burn everything down. So that was the way that I sometimes approached my blogging in my younger years that I just approached the world from, from a place of anger and resentment and, and rage and unhappiness. And I would wield my cruelty and my bullying through my verbal ability. So I remember someone who went to school with me at high school said, you know, no one knew what to do with him. Like no one knew what to do with his like hyperverbal brain. Other people were like afraid of me because I could be so sharp and cruel with the things that I said. So I remember my second grade teacher said, uh, Luke Ford is always very willing to share his opinions with the class. He needs to learn to be more considerate of a slower thinker. So I think for much of my life, I was unhinged, unbalanced, uh, frequently cruel to myself, to other people, uh, with many antisocial tendencies, such as uh, not sufficiently checking my facts when I was blogging, not putting things in appropriate context, not extending sufficient empathy for people that I was writing about or interviewing or talking about just in, in daily life. I was coming from a pretty damaged hurt place. And I'd like to think that over the last, last uh, six years or so, 
last six to ten years, but mainly in the last six years, I started to even out and start coming from a healthier place. So he was just making these, but one of the some of the more outlandish predictions were that the United States would undergo civil war and Texas would secede and link up with. And Glenn Medley says they have debunked the once fashionable notion that bullies suffer from low self-esteem. So I, I don't think it's low self-esteem, I, but I don't think it's happy. Like, can you imagine, why would someone in a happy place go around doing gratuitous harm to other people? That's just not reality as I see it. Okay, reality as I see it, happy people tend to be kind to themselves, uh, relatively kind to other people, you know, moderately helpful to other people, and don't distract themselves from whatever's important to them to just go around doing you know, needless harm to others, which is what I would associate with maladaptive bullying. Like, I, I know happy people. I feel like I'm a happy person. I don't wake up in the morning you know, looking for who can I put in their place today? Who can I take down today? Who can I wound today? You know, who can I go after and demean and diminish and destroy today? I, I used to have any of those tendencies. I just don't feel them nearly as intensely today. So the, the difference is I'm happier today than I was 15, 20, 30 years ago. So that's my experience of reality. Tell me, do you see happy people going out of their way to be needlessly cruel to other people? First of all, that is against your self-interest because when you hurt people, they usually try to find ways to get revenge on you. So contrast bullying with hazing. So hazing is what a gatekeeper does. So there are gatekeepers. You want to enter certain territory, certain professions, certain communities, Right, certain groups, certain clubs, right? There's often a testing of you, which you could also call it hazing. So hazing is the entrance fee for certain certain communities. And I think much more often than bullying, uh, hazing is appropriate and adaptive. Now, hazing can be maladaptive and dangerous and kill people. Obviously, that's hazing that uh, goes too far and I think is, is a really bad idea. But hazing as in testing people, right? See if they have the right stuff. So Orthodox Judaism, you are hazed if you want to convert to Orthodox Judaism, you used to drive me crazy. And uh, it's a very painful experience for many converts to Orthodox Judaism, so much so that they can't even face the, the rabbis who converted them. They want nothing to do with them, never want to talk about being a convert because the, the process they find so demeaning so just because someone shares something incredibly intimate and personal and painful on a live stream or in a private conversation with you or in an article or in a book doesn't mean that they want it thrown in their face you know, when you socialize with them. So there are painful, humiliating experiences that, that people may talk about publicly and doesn't mean they want it thrown in their face when you interact with them socially. But it should be tough to convert to Orthodox Judaism because you know, Jews don't want to be bringing people into the tribe who are going to be maladaptive for the tribe, who are going to be doing more harm, harm than good. So you want to winnow people out, such as joining the, the Navy, Navy SEALs, or before you put someone on the air, right? At uh, age 19, I was working at a radio station that I'd also done weekly shows for when I was in high school. And so having some standards questioning me you know, assessing my integrity, 
can I trust this person with a, with a live open microphone to the world, right? So that's the gatekeeper status. You know, some some level of hazing is probably appropriate there. Mexico in a new, <laughs> which I just, I, I, I kind of don't know what to say to someone. It's strong. Angley Medley says, I think boys can be simultaneously happy and cruel. I agree. I don't think adults can, generally speaking, be simultaneously happy and cruel. Sure, on, on, on odd occasions, there are exceptions. Generally speaking, adults don't rip other people to shreds needlessly. Like, they don't you know, act in needlessly cruel ways. Because certainly by the time you're an adult, you recognize that if you're needlessly cruel to other people, if you do needless harm to other people, they're very likely to find ways to retaliate. So it's against your own self-interest, let alone whatever amount of empathy that you've developed over years. I remember when I had chronic fatigue syndrome, eventually everyone that I interacted with who was in the second half of life was kind and compassionate. And most people I interacted with who were my age or younger were not particularly kind and, and compassionate. So I do see that as people age, they become more pro-social, more empathic, uh, more courteous. They just become nicer, finer, kinder people. Strikes me as a right-wing teenager who's... Uh, Richard Spencer used to rant about his disdain for Chuck Johnson. Now they're besties. I don't think they're besties, but I think they they found a temporary alliance. And I think both Chuck and Richard recognize the mercurial nature of their own selves and how they've both uh, spoken out or acted in sometimes ridiculous ways. And now they're older and wiser and perhaps more willing to forgive. Maybe read just a little bit about geopolitics. And then, I mean, it kind of even reminds I mean, to be fair and, and self-critical here, it even reminds me of some of the kind of wild-eyed things that I would come up with um, in my 20s or something. It's, it's just this extremely... So Richard there has more self-awareness than your average live streamer. Right. So he, he's confessing there to the you know, wild-eyed predictions that he used to make. So there, there are glimmerings of self-awareness in Richard Spencer, which makes him cut above most other commentators. Now, are you optimized for truth? Like when it comes to public discussion, are you primarily interested in what is true or in point scoring or what is you know, effective or what will make you feel good? or what will provide yeah, cathartic relief, or are you primarily optimizing for popularity, or they're helping your own side. So my self-conception is that I aim to be primarily optimized for truth. So that doesn't mean I pull that off. doesn't mean that I am always optimized for truth. doesn't mean that I don't sometimes put other things before truth. It doesn't mean that there are probably some areas that I can't see that I look away because I just don't want to see the truth. I'm a, a flawed human being with all sorts of self-destructive and antisocial desires and, and tendencies, just, just like everyone else. But my goal, my, my self-perception is that I strive to optimize for truth. And so part of that is to have a sense of my own track record, have a sense of the people who've been kind to me, people who've been good to me, having 
an appropriate sense of gratitude for the good things that we have in our country, in our society, in our news media, in our academia, in our NGOs, right? Even though all these organizations are primarily controlled by the left, they're recognizing the good that is done there in addition to, to the harm. So trying to optimize for truth means I try to take accountability for my own actions, my own mistakes, where I've just totally gone off the, the rails, where I've been needlessly cruel, where I've done things that would make me feel embarrassed if, uh, if they were talked about accurately or they were portrayed accurately right now. And so you get a little glimmerings of this with, with Richard Spencer. I think he needs to go a lot further instead of just settling, oh, I used to do that, but perhaps go into more, more depth with more examples, more specificity, so that he can step into that status of being fully human where you look back, it's like, oh my God, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. I was wrong about this. I needlessly hurt that person. I have amends to make, right? That is reality. When you come from that place of reality, I think you see the world much more accurately. So I was just talking to someone about the Meryl Streep movie, A Cry in the Dark. It came out in 1989, directed by a friend, Skipsy. And it was about Michael and Lindy Chamberlain, the Seventh-day Adventist pastor and his wife, who were on holiday at Ayers Rock, now known as Uluru, the Aboriginal name. And their baby daughter, Azaria, was taken by a dingo. But the Northern Territory police and prosecutors convicted Lindy Chamberlain for sacrificing her, her daughter and put her in prison, even though she was completely innocent. And so this is a great movie showing that the dark side of Australia and the dark side of the news media and the dark side of, of experts. And my, my Australian friend said, oh, I never saw that because I just figured it'd be rubbish because it'd just be Yanks there portraying Australia in some stupid way. And my response to him is, you will see what you want to see, all right? If that's your perception, if that's the, the, the rock of resentment that you're carrying with you, then yeah, when you go to see that movie, you're going to see what you want to see, right? No matter what it is in the world, you're going to see what you want to see. So if you're coming to the world with resentment and rage about how you've been demeaned and diminished and the world has you know, stacked its odds against you and it didn't properly you know, recognize your contributions at uh, this or that elite university and how you were fired from this job for no good reason and you had these videos taken down, right? If you come from that place of rage and resentment and then you look at the news, you're going to find more and more things to feel rageful and resentful and pissed off and demeaned and angry about. If you come from a place of gratitude, I think you're more likely to come from a place that's uh, situated closer to reality than if you come from a place of rage. Bold, but ultimately, and, and there's some logic to it, granted, but, but kind of ultimately ridiculous uh, prognostication. And of course, Elon tweeted under it, you know, epic thread. So, um, yeah, Elon Musk tweets a lot of stupid things. I'm grateful for the great things he's done with Twitter. I'm so grateful for the great things he's done with Twitter that I keep these stupid things that he tweets in perspective. Right. Compared to the great things he's doing for us, these stupid, idiotic tweets that he makes just don't matter that much. The bullies in my school ended up in low-status jobs. Yeah, because bullying is generally maladaptive. Uh, bullying is usually an act of, of physical strength that you 
use to try to compensate for your, your failures in life. And as you get older, as you move into adulthood, you know, physical strength usually is not the most important thing. So yeah, schoolyard bullies do not tend to go on to happy lives. Why? Because they weren't in a particularly happy place when they were bullying you in the first place. Right? Schoolyard bullies aren't happy people. Right? They are rageful, resentful, belittled, demeaned, abused people, generally speaking, who treat other people very similarly to how they treat themselves. Right? I find overwhelmingly, when I'm in a good place and I'm kind to myself, I tend to be good and kind to other people. When I am in self-hatred and self-loathing and, and shame, self-disgust, uh, when I have you know, abandoned all hope, when I'm feeling like a victim, I don't treat other people very well. So however you see people treating others, it's usually a reflection of how they relate to themselves. Glib Medley has great pressure in the chat to maintain the Glib Medley vibe at all times. No breaks for Glib Medley. So let's play a little bit more here from Richard Spencer and soon he's bringing on Chuck Johnson. I don't even know what to say about it. I mean, the interesting thing about Medvedev is that he goes, he has a long history with Putin. I mean, he was, goes back to St. Petersburg. It goes back to the St. Petersburg days. So he's talking about this, widely talked about Twitter thread by a guy who used to have a high position in, in Russia. Is it, is it Medvedev? Um, but is it? he was generally treated as a, Putin with a lighter touch or a much more pro-West Putin. And, uh, you know, Putin was prime minister while he was president. And uh, I even saw this from like pro-Russia people of, you know, Medvedev's not the real deal. He's going to get manipulated and so on. He um, went along with the West in Libya. There were just a number of things about him that... Yes, I think he's talking about Dmitry Medvedev, who used to be the putative leader of Russia when term limits made Putin stepped down, at least de jure, if not de facto. Would suggest that he's not the kind of unhinged um, anti-American, anti-Western figure, that he's he's kind of the opposite of that. And, uh, and then he puts out this. I, I don't quite know what to make of it other than it's rather stupid. When I read that, uh, my first thought was, I'm wondering if he is sober when he wrote that, because I got... Uh... <laughs> I mean, it felt very bizarre because, uh, I mean, sometimes I'm being drunk and tweeting stuff, which I regret sure. afterwards. And uh, I sh yeah, it was very bizarre reading that. And it's like from an official account as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. just, again, I, I almost want to, I, I almost want to forgive it on some level because it reminds me of the outlandish theories that I came up with when I was like 25 or something. <laughs> 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 but, but like, I'm not, I'm not a Russian official in the midst of a war, you know? I think Richard. I think I know who wrote this. Uh, it's uh, Jackson Jackson Hinkle. Oh yeah, you know? Jackson Hinkle. Well, yes. obviously you're kidding, but I don't think Medvedev <laughs> writes those, those tweets himself. I think he has a he has a team that uh, runs his Twitter account as well as other social media accounts. So, I, yeah, uh, he's not he's not a an autonomous um, figure that you know you can parse and you know kind of analyze as something right. that operates on its own. He's the, the reason for the the turn toward kind of more um, unhinged kind of hawkish attitudes is he's probably uh, it's probably a survival instinct he's probably looking beyond Putin at some point and he um, yeah. he wants to he wants to establish credentials with the people who will come and succeed Putin and those would yeah guess what public officials just like you and me 
we don't usually say what we mean, say what they mean, and most people usually do not mean what they say. So you just can't take statements at face value. It would be much more of a kind of hard line, uh, kind of Sheila Vicky, the, you know, the people from the, the military and the, you know, the security services. So he had that reputation back when he was president as kind of a, a guy who went to Silicon Valley, met, met with Steve Jobs and likes yeah. Nike sneakers and iPhones and all that stuff. But he, he's, he's trying to get rid of that. He's trying to kind of, because it's basically. Well, this did that. This did. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. He, he, The brand has been shifted. Yeah, I've right. seen that famous. Okay, so what the hell is going on with Kanye West? Where is Kanye Kanye West, ex-business manager, can't locate erratic star to serve him with 4.5 million lawsuit mid rumor he's missing. So his ex-business manager, Thomas St. John, sent a tweet, Kanye West has reportedly been missing, unable to find for weeks. So we've got a, a court filing the 719th. So where is Kanye West? They're unable to serve Kanye West with this lawsuit, right? Failed servicing attempts come two months after the complaint was filed in Los Angeles. Kim Kardashian opened up on a podcast about her co-parenting experiences. Co-parenting is really hard with, with Kanye. I definitely protect him. Kanye, I still win in the eyes of my kids, for my kids, so my home. My kids don't know anything that goes on in the outside world. This is heavy, heavy grown-up stuff, and they're not ready to deal with it. And when they are, we'll have those conversations. So if they didn't know what, what, what is being said, what's happening in the world, why would I ever bring that energy to them? So Kanye West has apparently disappeared. It was like the first iPhone or something like that. And Medvedev right. and Jobs are standing together. It, it, was, it was definitely a very different image. And uh, this is the image of the like deep Kremlin paranoid researcher you know, and, and also kind of trying to create maybe a self-fulfilling prophecy or something. I, I think a lot of, you know, these well, predictions are like that. Yeah, well, partly, I, I think, I, I mean, if, if, they're, if they're smart enough, they'll understand that the, the fringe elements throughout the world will, will jump on it and, and just go ballistic over it and retweet it. And, yes. And, you know, Moscow is among the first to confirm that, that expectation. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, this... So, yeah, we all operate according to an algorithm and we usually... You know, Ali know a little bit about the algorithm that, that drives us, but we, we do have some conscious glimmerings of the forces that drive us. So what have we optimized for? Are we optimized for taking care of the family? Are we optimized for looking for love? Are we optimized for having as much sex as possible? Are we optimized for making as much money as possible? Are we optimized for being as good a Christian as we can? Are we optimized for performing the commandments of, of the Torah as much as, as possible. We optimize for, for learning. We optimize for our own happiness. Uh, we optimize for safety. I would like to think that the way my algorithms works, to the extent that I have some glimmerings of it, is that I think my algorithm, I would hope, at least some of the time, is optimized towards seeking the truth. And so I think if you're going to listen to someone who's talking about public affairs, public life, politics, culture, religion. You'd want to listen to those people who are optimized for truth. 
rather than people who are optimized for getting followers, creating sensations, for you know getting cathartic relief, for getting fame or status. Why would you not want to listen to people who are optimized for seeking truth? This goes back, and I, so I think um, uh, so. Uh, Charles, you're actually here, right? You just yeah. Uh, can you can you hear me? Can yes, hear me? I can. Uh, yes. Marvelous. Okay, great. Sorry, I um... yeah. Feel free to feel free to jump in. Um, I mean, you have to understand that the Russians and the Chinese, they like want this kind of like breakup. So I, I read that as a, um, as a kind of hostage tweet, um, yeah. because Medvedev is sort of like what we might call the Russian deep. Yeah. So the world's an iron cage. We're all locked together. And so if the United States is relatively weakened, then China and Russia get stronger. If China and Russia uh, weakened relative to the United States, which is what I see in the world around me. The United States is relatively getting stronger and stronger vis-a-vis -vis its rivals. Then obviously that's that's bad for, for China and Russia. We're all locked in an iron cage together. And in the final analysis, the strong will take what they want and the weak will endure what they must. State, which has been like thoroughly decapitated by the Putinist people in the last, like basically the last year and change. So what's happening is those who are surviving in my view, are basically pretending to be crazy nut jobs, and it doesn't quite work because the real nut jobs can sense that they're not really authentic nut jobs. And so, it is fascinating. All the Russian businessmen who are dying, falling downstairs. I mean, just one after another, after another, after another. It's hard to believe that all these Russian businessmen are just dying purely by accident. And so, what's in it for Putin? That he's he's seems to be killing off. Russia's you know, most effective, most affluent uh, businessman. Why? What's the I play? read that tweet as basically him publicly saying that he, you know, he gives up, that basically he accepts that he's uh, captured by the Putinist forces. But that makes sense. Okay, yeah, that, that's, that's very similar to, to what Boris was saying, actually. So, um, yeah, um, it, it is fascinating that Elon, you know, of all the tweets to go with he went with that one and also it's not the first time i think he he he's been replying to medvedev like in a friendly manner more than once and it's just a very curious thing well recall um, that spacex is only really possible with the help of the russians right and so you have people like um you know you have people like uh, i think i believe her name is diane murphy who was plugged in with the russians you had musk's trip to the former soviet union right right after uh, you know, right after he got sort of liquid from the PayPal uh, mm -hmm. sort, of, sort of incident. Okay, uh, breaking news from Lancet, right? This premier medical journal. They've done a study on monkeypox in women, and about half of the women are biologically male. Okay, and uh, great news. We've got, we've got a list here. We've got a list of the New York Times greatest movies for 2022. Let's uh, let's just take take a break from from the troubles of the world around us, and uh, let, let's see. Here's here's a classic. This should be good. You bloody drongo! You stole me didgeridoo. When a white man burns a sacred Aboriginal tree for fun, he returns to his van to find an abo has stolen his petrol. Trapped in the outback with the abos, 
he learns of their progressive conceptions of gender and discovers he is a woman. Gosh, that sounds amazing. Right. New York Times, year in film, 2022. Milk. A black man accidentally drinks some milk, which sends him on a psychedelic trip. Freaked out, he is motivated to uncover a conspiracy. White people are aliens. They have secret giant farms of black people. They harvest for milk, which gives them energy. Got to see that. Jiro Dreams of Mass Immigration. Sequel. When sushi chef, chef. Jiro discovers that his Nigerian employee Bongo Bongo's work visa has expired and that he will soon be deported. Starts a campaign to change Japan's outdated and racist immigration laws and so to change Japan forever. Another Showa. An elderly Holocaust survivor living in Ukraine during Putin's invasion struggles in his life as the war takes its toll. These scenes are contrasted with flashbacks to his time as a boy in Auschwitz and parallels are drawn between the Holocaust and the current war. Gosh, that sounds powerful too. My son, the gay retard, Cairo. The mosque, the minarets, the hustle of the big city, the buzz of the bazaar. For you, my friend, good price. Missed it all. In the city's homophobic slums lives the struggling widow Fatima. His son is a gay retard. It's an urgent piece of filmmaking. Gosh, I can't wait to see this one. Rape. Mexican woman is forced to leave her comfortable middle-class life in Mexico because of the legacy of white colonialism, and she illegally moves to America every day there. She finds herself being constantly abducted and raped because of America's deep culture of misogyny. And then Bongoy Watutu's Marvelous Anus. Began this historic first LGBT film, a moving drama about a local village man who discovers he is gay and he has AIDS. And he decides to travel around Uganda spreading happiness by letting other men use his bum, despite the prejudices of those around him. All right, how about the Berlin Rogering? German school teacher instructs students about black pill incel ideology to warn how it's the same as the Nazis. However, incel ideology soon spreads throughout the school and the student decides to emulate Elliot Roger. Space 3000X, controversial sci-fi epic adaptation of classics 1970s novel, some have labeled Islamophobic, about an expedition of space crusaders to a desert planet whose barbaric natives follow a strange space death cult called Bislam, fanatical lunatics in bizarre sand clothes. Or Mega Bang Reloaded, like a blast from the past, this high-octane stunt film sequel to 80s hit Mega Bang will entertain and dazzle, but the film seems to believe the America of its 1970s original setting still exists and features some questionable lines such as two gooks on my radar. Wow. Some uh, some stunning and brave cinema. Or, you know, uh, uh, liquidation of that. And then, of course, you have, um, you know, the, the longstanding relationships that his first wife had with the Maxwells, who were sort of go-betweens between the Crown and the Kremlin. Um, you know, you have there. There's sort of those pictures of uh, of Jeffrey Epstein visiting the home of uh, Sarkayev, um or Sakharov rather in um, yeah. in Russia. And so, yeah, there, there's this there's this longstanding sort of Russian ties with the Musk family going back to his father as well in in South Africa. So um, it's it's not at all surprising that he would be engaging in that way. I think what that was was basically a wish list of the Putin's yes. types. Um, that's kind of my read on it for what it's worth and. I think they have a fundamental, I mean, you could see this with, you know, Draper Fisher-Jurvetson um, is one of the investors in SpaceX. 
and I believe in Tesla, though I'm not quite sure. But anyway, Tim Draper, Draper was part of that quixotic effort to break up the state of California into multiple states. And that's sort of of a keeping with like, you know, his idea that there'll be a sort of separation. Right. Um, this, I guess this leads us into talking about Trump. We could transition because would, would you agree with me? I mean, that there's no question that Trump, all, all indications tell us that Trump is the preferred candidate in 2016 and 2020. And there, you know, we don't, we don't have to agree with all of the details. You know, was it Russia that hacked the DNC servers? Was it Russia that got a hold of Hunter's laptop and so on? But just all indications, including the kind of very pro-Russia and maybe Russian, even Russian assets, or maybe people who want to be Russian assets, just their shift towards the Republican Party, et, et cetera. Like it, Trump yeah, is- we do see, I mean, we do see the Russians, you know, post uh, breakup of the Soviet Union. We do see them, you know, the 90s making overtures and being friendly with the evangelical community. And you can kind of yeah. see the evangelicals are sort of jointly owned by the Russians and by the Netanyahu Israelis all throughout. Charles Johnson, come on, says the evangelicals are jointly owned by the Russians and the Israelis. I mean, this is just bizarro land. I, I, I know evangelical Christians, much of my family are evangelical Christians. This notion that America's evangelical Christians are jointly owned by Israel and the Russians just has absolutely no resemblance to reality. Right. Some evangelical Christians are hot for Israel for their own eschatological reasons. That uh, what they think will happen at the end of time, the Jews will return to the, the land of Israel and then Jesus will come back. But uh, evangelical Christians are not jointly owned by the Russians and, and the Israelis. It, it's just such a bizarre, bizarre thing to say. Come on, man. Job, I would say that. Oh, she's, okay. I would say that she's actually. Well, it's actually more disturbing in a way. I would say that. Um, so there, this this two-hour show is just filled with nutty conspiracy theories about QAnon and uh, the Kushners and uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and Maggie Haberman. She's a Zionist agent. I mean, she's very passionate about that. You know, you know, our dear friend Laura Loomer, who you know uh -huh. is not always operating with a full deck herself. Um, right. She she introduced me to Ms. Barr, and um, so this is Bill Barr's daughter who was operating the important part of the Justice Department. Anyway, none of us are always operating with a full deck in every area of our life. And Ms. Barr had just come from a, a call with uh, with some of the people around Netanyahu before she had the interview with Laura, and oh, so wow. and so I do wonder, you know, what to make of her. And the she's whole not just some wine mom, you know, tweeting out. Uh, unhinged up drunk. Uh, fair enough. Um, yes. I, and, to I, me, I to me, and by the way, by yeah. the way, that is also very disturbing to me because like I loved her work when I was growing up and I would sneak television at my cousin's houses or whatever. Right. So sure. the, degree, the degree to which these like, are running, but I am encouraged, you know, like the first Roseanne person Barr. who was, um, you know, you saw the Danish filmmakers. Yeah. So Roseanne Barr is a part of some bizarre conspiracy along with the Russians and the Netanyahu's and uh, Donald Trump and the FBI Right, who are interviewing, yes. who are filming, like those people are clearly Danish intelligence, like without yeah. question. And then you see the and British got amazing material. They had smoking gun material yes. in a parking lot of the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys shaking hands. It, it looks like a scene from Oliver Stone's JFK movie. Yes, it was like it was so it was so good that you wondered if it was staged. And then you yes. realized, then you realized that like the thought bubble that probably occurred for these people 
is like, oh, fuck it, they're Danish, like, it doesn't matter, it'll happen later, right? And because they're such narcissists, they didn't realize that they were basically, like, driving to the prison, you know, handing over their keys, putting on their prison uniform, and jumping into the cell, right? Yes. You want to seem powerful. I I fell into this as well. I'm I'm not innocent. Like, you you want to seem powerful, and so... Okay, again, glimmerings of self-awareness. What we need is more specificity from Richard. How did you fall into this? And then who else was, was hurt? You never hear from Richard any sense of responsibility or any sense of a need to make amends for the lives that he's disturbed and damaged. So you just get these glimmerings. Uh, I, I fell into this as well, but it's very surface level awareness. It's not sensed in, in like the kishkas of his being. It's not sensed in the, in the depth of his soul. If he was able to sense that and begin making amends for that and, and to recognize not just the good things he's done, but also the damage that he's done, then then there would be help for Richard getting on a good trajectory and becoming a pro-social, for, you know, pro-social force in the world. But for, for now, all we get are these, these small glimmerings of awareness of, of his own humanity. When someone allows you to seem powerful, you, you take the bait. And it, it's, a, it's a kind of human failing. But just to go back real quick to what I was talking about January 6th, is that so QAnon arises as a kind of justification for Trump. And it, it coincided, I mean... Okay, just take this for what it's worth. It coincided with basically Charlottesville happening and and, and kind of di- you know diminishing severely the brand of the alt right and so on because there was talk of you know Ted Cruz going on saying these are terrorists and blah blah blah. And it also came about at a time when um, I was criticizing Trump pretty heavily, and there was a lot of kind of okay, Trump, you need to put it up or shut up. Like you are in charge, you've got Congress, you've got the presidency, and what are you doing? You're doing Paul Ryan's agenda. And then you're signing on this omnibus, which he supported, and then decided to, uh, you know, renege his support later, and very similar to what was going on this past uh, week. So it, it occurred as this kind of conspiracy theory of, like, trust the plan. Like, don't criticize him on the basis of objective reality. You know, don't read the news. The news is all fake. And eh, there's kernel truth to that. Right. So as Mickey Kaus remarked a couple of months ago, Richard Spencer did tremendous damage to Donald Trump. Richard Spencer probably did more damage to, to Donald Trump than any other person aside from Donald Trump. But Richard has absolutely no sense of this. He, he doesn't like carry any of this in his in his heart and in his soul and in his consciousness and the way he looks out at the world. You, you just get the smallest glimmerings from Richard that he has some awareness that he made some mistakes, that he was you know, somewhat delusional. But there's, there's no sense of, of the damage that he's done to other people. Right? He, he seems to display zero awareness of the damage that he's done to other people. And it's only when you become aware of your, your own flaws and your own dangerous sides to your own personality and you know, the, the damaging, destructive, disgusting things that you've done in the past, not that you should be walking around with guilt about them, but it will help you have a more accurate sense of yourself and then that will then help you have a more accurate sense of the world around you because we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. So if we're like your typical distant right live streamer, just filled with anger, rage, resentment, sense of victimhood and being screwed over, that it's absolutely hopeless, that the odds are just stacked against you, that there's you know, nothing that uh, he can do, we can do to turn things around, right? Then you're going to find things in the world that, that back up your sense of rage and resentment and victimhood. If you come from a place of gratitude for the opportunities that are being extended to you, for the kindness that has been shown to you, for people who've, who've loved you, for, for people who've helped you out, 
then you'll be able to recognize the good things in the world and the things that uh, deserve preserving and protecting. So Mickey Kaus thinks that uh, we're going to have a scandal in the next few years with regard to ballot harvesting. Yeah, uh, was is, is, is obvious and it's, a, it's sort of an oldie for fans of the paradigm. There will at some point in the next two or three years be a big scandal involving mail-in ballots, probably involving harvesting mail-in ballots. Uh, people say, well, it's not, it, you know, it's, it worked in Oregon. It's, okay, it's worked in Oregon so far. People in Oregon will actually contest that. But and there have been a couple of mini scandals, and Republicans think Democrats always manage to find enough votes to win. But um, this is going to be an indisputable scandal that even people on the left will uh, decry. And it might even be a scandal on the right, of, of right, right campaign workers, uh, you know, dropping the Democratic ballots in the river before they turn them in. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's just obvious. It's an opportunity for a crime. The, fact, the, the people who run campaigns are crazy young people who want to win, who do not obey the rules if they can get away with it. And some of them will disobey the rules and, you know, drop a pile of ballots in the river and get caught. And then we'll have a big scandal. It would help if it was a right-wing scandal because then the press will pay attention to it and reform the ballot system. So this is one of your official predictions? That is. But it's not necessarily for next year. It's like for the next two or three years. By the way, did you see that Elon is now Yeah, so there the may be substantial potential for fraud there, and that is worth keeping an eye on. Uh, but I will say this. Uh, oh, I was going to... Oh, no, I've already done that. I was, I, yeah. I was going to say what, what reminded me of severance. Oh, if, yeah. you remember, if you remember in severance, these people are in a, in a sort of cell of workers, as far as I got in the series, and they're sort of looking for weird patterns in, in data that they don't quite know why, and then they pass it on to another department in the firm. That's very similar to what seemed to be going on at, yes, Twitter, in the Ruby files, where she described, well, we applied the machine learning to these sites, and you know, we got these findings, and then we passed them on to a higher level, and they would decide whether to ban the sites. And you know, we discovered that people who mentioned Dinesh D'Souza's 2,000 mules, that gave us a lot of positive positives in terms of people who are election deniers. So we passed that information on up, but we really were in the dark. Uh, it just like these people just seemed like the people in Severance. They're sitting at their desk connecting various dots. Oh, oh. Uh, of course, in Severance, they don't understand what the point of the dot connecting is, but. Uh... Right. Uh, but, there's some kind of intuition that's being harnessed in ways they don't understand. But um, the, uh, these people seem there were large parts of the process that they did not understand. Yeah. You know, I will say, like, some interesting stuff is coming out of Twitter file. Uh, these weren't I, Twitter files. These were, this was another leak separately. Oh, was it? Yeah. What was it? Who did it? Who did it? People leaked to this PR woman, Ruby. I talked about her before, the Ruby files. Oh, OK. Anyway, go um, ahead. No, I mean, the FBI stuff is interesting. The problem is. Getting a, a reliable sense for like, well, how often were the requests? I mean, let me put it this way: if any, you know, if the FBI goes to any social media company, or you know, and says, you know, well, we if we have some some people are worried about, will you at least read our emails and just take your own look, make your decision? You know, they're all going to say yes. And if and if the New York Times is about to break a story based on top secret doc, documents, and the government says, well, can we at least make our case to you that you shouldn't write this story? New York Times is going to say yes. So it's like it's not shocking that the FBI was was submitting stuff. What we need to know is like how judicious was Twitter in handling these. And uh, Mickey Kaus has a great point coming up. He says that when Democrats decide, when the mainstream media decides that they need to be rid of Joe Biden, that he shouldn't run for a second term, then they will use the Hunter Biden laptop story and the, the 10 million set aside for the big guy. Then they will, then they will seize on that as as a nail in Joe Biden's coffin to stop him from running again. So when this story becomes useful to Democrats in power, they will use it. 
And this gets they were back not to exactly, they were not exactly New York Times and the Pentagon Papers case. Let's put it that way. Well, I don't know what they were. The trouble is I don't consider Tybee a, re a reliable narrator for reasons I, I've laid out as far as how he handled the first stuff, where he gives us three URLs uh, that we now know were dick pics, and he makes it sound scandalous that the Biden, Biden campaign sent him in and Twitter actually acted on them, and he doesn't even tell us their dick pics. I mean, I don't trust that. Is, that has become my test as to whether I trust an article. It's just they, they make a big deal of the, of the Twitter guy saying handled. Uh, I sort of say, okay, you're not taking this seriously. The, uh, uh, the, the funny thing about the FBI is Tybee, if you read the th thread, he, uh, he says um, – the FBI sent in these uh, these names, and some of these tweets are obviously jokes. And he kind of spends some time on that. And, and he even like says, I emailed this person whose tweet was a joke. And they said, I can't believe they're singling out tweets that are jokes. And then it turns out the Twitter people recognize the things that were jokes and didn't act on them. I mean, he and he, and he, and he, he doesn't quite highlight that. I mean, he, he, it's almost like he acknowledges it. It's like, so why did, I don't know. It, it's, uh, but, uh, but, but the other, the, in a way, the thing that bothers me the most is like the Pentagon, like CENTCOM, got Twitter to approve. This came out in the most recent one that was done by uh, this guy, Lee Fang, at The Intercept. And see, here's the thing. Lee Fang is a reporter. Matt Tybee and Barry Weiss are polemicists, right? I don't, know if, I don't know if either has ever had a true reporting job, maybe. But uh, maybe Barry Weiss did at the Times or something. But Lee Fang is just a straight-up reporter. And his thread reads kind of like you want something to read. And the thing he uncovered is that uh, the Pentagon got, went to Twitter and said, look, you know, we got these CENTCOM accounts. Can you uh, like whitelist them, so to speak? In other words, essentially make them immune to blacklisting. Like right. you won't be, you know, these are not going to be muted, blah, blah, blah. And then over time, the Pentagon converted them into these totally fake accounts. Like they morphed into accounts like supposedly this is some Arab's account. They even had a deep fake picture. The picture on the account profile was not even a real human being. It was a fake Arab with a fake right. name. And they're using it to, to put out U.S. talking points. And Lee Fang says, you know, there were executives at Twitter who clearly knew about this. They, they, you can, it's in their communication. Now that to me is... Possibly the most scandalous thing that's come out, you know, if that even happened once, right? It, 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 right. It, 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 it's creating more speech, not not uh, not erasing speech that ordinary Americans wanted to make. It's creating more speech. It's creating a fucking lie. It's empowering right. the government to lie to us. It, it's we pay our government with our tax dollars, and it's empowering them to lie to uh, us about who is saying what on Twitter. I'd rather have the. I'm, I'm making this up, but I think I'd rather have the government pay somebody to lie than the government stop me from telling the truth. Uh, I don't want the, my government to use my tax dollars to pay somebody to lie to me, A. And B, leaving that aside, you don't think it's egregious malpractice on Twitter's part to participate in this? If, if they did it knowingly, I, I, I don't get as exercised about it as I get about, about uh, actually throttling legitimate speech. Well, you know, well they, but there the question becomes what legitimate is. And my complaint about Tybee is it kind of never – he doesn't really grapple with that. It, you know, it's just like they sent in some names. Sometimes Twitter complied. I, I'm not, you know, Taibbi had the transcript of documents that was uh, curated by James Baker, who was one of the villains in all this, and probably did approve, you know, a lot of the things that you object to, too. So, uh, you know, this idea, and it's out there, is that Taibbi and Weiss had the complete run of all the Twitter files. I don't think that's true. I think they were handed an envelope of files by a lawyer that represented the results of a search of the files, uh, and it is not everything. Uh, I think there's a whole lot more there. Uh, so, um, but so Taibbi was making the most sensational story he could out of the, the you know, the, the, the material ingredients he had and one of the ways to do Yeah, journalists think there's nothing wrong with making their stories as sensational as possible. But that just has to heighten our skepticism of journalists and journalism because their, their business depends upon grabbing our attention or competing in the attention economy. And so they are grabbing our attention for things that don't deserve attention. So after you've been consistently manipulated and effectively lied to in that way, it's no wonder that people are growing distrust of the news media. 
do that is to make a whole fuss about the what turned out to be the dick pics. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, right away, uh, a, a commenter, I think, is telling us here what Matt Tybee said about the conditions behind his paywall. He says, in the rush to get all this done, I chose words poorly, meaning when he said, I, I agreed to some restrictions and I'll tell you later. Or something. He says, and then right. Tybee goes on to say, a lot has been made about the, the line about how I had agreed to certain conditions. Or, and so I wrote that assuming the meaning of that line would be obvious. Why are you saying that? Uh, it was obvious. Still, the language was just loose enough to give critics room to make mischief. And the stakes being what they are, they, of course, did. That's on me and a lesson going forward. For the record, the deal was access to the Twitter documents, but I had to publish on Twitter. Now, that's what I had speculated, that maybe that was all it was. And then he says, I also agreed to an attribution, uh, quote, sources at Twitter. No, it was not, you know, and that's it. Well, that's not much. Uh, why didn't he just say that uh, at the beginning? It, it, it's weird. Um, uh, and then the, the commenter, Rabbit Engstrom, goes on to say there are four more paragraphs. This is behind Tybee's paywall, basically saying that Elon encouraged him and Weiss and Schellenberger uh, another one of the Twitter files, guys, to say whatever they want. The first paragraph is where he acknowledges the accuracy of Bob's point, the point being that he probably uh, just was compelled to release it on Twitter. Um, the, the, other virtue, the, the other virtue of the Republicans making a big deal of the Hunter laptop is it drives Biden crazy. It's like, it's like pushing the sore spot where he screams in pain. Mm -hmm. So if you want to produce, make the president of the United States put him in an irrational mood, that's the way to do it. Not clear that this is the time when we want him worrying about something other than not, not not creating a nuclear war. Yeah. What did you think of speaking of AI? What do you think of Kissinger's argument that uh, I like it? AI will be so sophisticated that the weapons themselves will decide to start a war without human intervention. Um, I think you know his general point is that. But anyway, uh, Mickey has has another point elsewhere, where he says that uh, when the news media and the Democratic elites want to get rid of Joe Biden, that's when they'll invoke the Hunter Biden laptop story at ten million for the big guy. I mean, you know, drugs destroyed their lives. They were doing fine and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I, yeah, no, it could be. Look, uh, you know, change is problematic. Uh, and now, now all these people, now all these people are never going to get jobs because Joe Biden is letting ten million hardworking illegal immigrants across the border who are going to take the jobs that they otherwise would have. Could be just now. Like, just to wrap it all up here. Yeah, I was thinking. I was wondering <laughs> whether we were going there or child tax credit, but the. Um, uh, well, Charles Aspen will give them the money to buy the drugs. Now, he's probably secretly happy that this court has said they have to sustain the COVID uh, policy on immigration, right, of not letting... You would think that he asked the court to not... So this, this is Vicky weighing in on the root causes of homelessness. Cocaine with fentanyl. I mean, don't, don't they want people to think they're taking cocaine? I mean, fentanyl is a totally different effect. I don't it? understand that. And why would they want no, to kill off... Fentanyl exacspates oh, the effect of cocaine. But anyway, when, you, when I see somebody and they said he was on cocaine, I think, eh, so what? I mean, there's certainly a lot deadly. of, I mean, there are tons of musicians and actors who went through a cocaine phase and then had to get off it completely. I, I don't think there's a ton of people who stay on it and use it moderately and it doesn't significantly impair their performance. That's I really, I don't think there's, I think people go through the phase, they don't die, but they I'm realize it's good. I'm just saying, is it, is it bad enough that it should be, have the be criminalized? That's all. Uh, people fuck up their lives in a hundred different ways. Yeah. There's no, no. way they can fuck up their lives. There's that argument. I mean, I guess the Netherlands has experience, uh, Supposedly, there's some cautionary tales there. But yeah. speaking of people who are fucking up their lives, um, it, uh, it, it's, I was thinking, you know, LA has this big homeless crisis, and it's, I, think, I think it's now been declared an emergency. We 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 did not like the Republican in sheep's clothing who was going to solve it by building eighty four thousand dollar little yurts for everybody. Uh, so we're we're back with the. Uh, I like Hispanic. the phrase. I like the phrase Republican in sheep's clothing. By the way, but go ahead. Uh, um, and uh, well, I, I, I would have voted for him if I could vote for him, but I could. But um. Uh, so and you, you always wonder, well, uh, what's the root cause of homelessness, okay? And the liberals will tell you the root cause is lack of affordable housing, which obviously has something to do with it. But 
you know, when you offer people affordable housing or, or clean housing, often they turn it down because they would rather uh, live their lives on the streets where the rules against taking drugs do not apply. And you also worry that if you do give them a, a you know, decent, clean, small size housing, uh, that will just attract more people to come to California and also get their housing. Uh, why not? It's free. Uh, and the root cause of it is obviously, when you think of it, the same root cause as the fentanyl crisis in the Midwest and the, you know, the, the uh, why, why, um, why, is it, why was there this populist uprising against globalism? It's because unskilled people don't have the jobs they used to have and the jobs themselves were socializing. So you have some guy who's on the streets in California. Uh, he's taking drugs. He's undisciplined. If he'd been back home in the pre-globalization era, he would have had some lousy job, but it would have required him to like show up every day to do his lousy job. And he wouldn't be homeless and on drugs in California. Maybe he'd even have a family. So it's all the same problem. The problem of, uh, you know, globalization. The, the, of, the, of the screwing of the unskilled uh, you know, the wage worker. Yeah. Uh, Could be. I mean, I, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, you'd have to look at how these people got there. I don't, I don't know. I mean, the, the official party line is that they're homegrown. That doesn't, of course, solve the problem, but I don't believe it. I mean, you certainly, you certainly, uh, come across cases of people who where that wasn't the problem. I mean, you know, drugs destroyed their lives. They were doing fine and stuff like that. But, uh, I, I, yeah, no, it could be, look, uh, you know, Change is problematic. Uh, and now, now all these people, now all these people are never going to get jobs because Joe Biden is letting ten million hardworking illegal immigrants across the border who are going to take the jobs that they otherwise would have. Could be just now. Just to wrap it all up here. Yeah, I was thinking. I was wondering whether we were going there or child tax credit, but the um, uh, well, child tax credit will give them the money to buy the drugs. Now he's probably secretly happy that this court has said they have to sustain the COVID uh, policy on immigration, right? Of not letting. You would think that he asked the court to. Not do that. He asked the court to end Title 42, and it's not clear that the court won't just do that. The only people holding it up, I think, are the states mm-hmm. who want to extend it. And I don't see where they have that much sway with the court. I mean, if, if Biden wants to end it, he's the executive authority. He, you know, he can end it one way or the other. Uh, you know, if he, if he failed to follow the Administrative Procedure Act, he can go back and follow the Administrative Procedure Act. Maybe he'll take a sweet time about it. But I think I think the administration is pretty determined that it will end because they've made the calculation that when the huge surge happens and the already uh, huge numbers of people pouring across the border doubles or triples. Mm-hmm. The public won't care because the mainstream media won't show them the pictures. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the country can absorb 10 million people. Well, we saw uh, pictures of El Paso, right? Right. And for, for some reason, for a few days, the networks all carried it. Mm-hmm. And I, can't, I was very suspicious that there was some reason why they did. Uh, I think it was for lack of anything else to cover. I don't think they're still covering it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, I did that, that's the, the lesson of the Mallorca era was as long as they're not pictures of 10,000 people huddled under a bridge, he can get away with it. And the midterms validated that for them. If they'd lost in the midterms, maybe there would be some change. But it didn't seem to cost them that much in the midterms. So uh, I think I think they're they're determined to move straight ahead, and 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 uh, you know it won't change until uh, until there's a change of president. Uh, okay, ex CIA officer here says that uh, something's going to happen in 2027. I wonder what's going to happen in 2027. And I would say I've heard 2027 in a kind of an official capacity I can't reveal. So I think um, I I would say that people in the government are aware of something happening and that there's limited time, uh, a few more years to prepare the people. And that's what's ramping up uh, this acceleration uh, from the previous seven decades of not even acknowledging it to now we are acknowledging it at a faster and faster pace. Okay, that's former CIA officer John Ramirez claims the government's aware of an impending 
event in 2027, which will reveal something quite significant the people are being prepared for. So this has received a thousand retweets. What the, what the hell? What the hell, guys? What are they talking about? What's happening in 2027? All right, let's go to decoding the gurus. When in doubt, let's, uh, let's decode. Right, Chris Cavanaugh, Matt Brown. Uh, you know, corrupt and needs to be destroyed. This is this is why I think people like Stuart Ritchie and Ben Goldacre and stuff are important, um, because they they obviously are very openly critical. But even in that case, like you know, Brett dismissed Stuart Ritchie's negative review of his book as being like a postmodern <laughs> take, which it doesn't matter that he's a uh, you know quite a heterodox figure and somebody that's published on science. Like Brett Hill just said, he wasn't interested in science and he's like postmodernist, so that's why he doesn't like the book. Yeah, look, here's, here's my take on that, Chris, which is that I mean, it's very hard to beat something like this because when you optimize for public appeal. Um, then, and you focus on making that your main priority, then you are going to do better for the people than the people that are optimizing for just merely being effective or being true, right? Um, so, you know, it, it, we have the same problem uh, and it's existed for, for years, right? With complementary and alternative medicines as opposed to conventional medicine. Conventional medicine is unpleasant, alienating, treats you like a piece of meat, doesn't, doesn't feel good in any way, shape or form. Nobody enjoys visiting a hospital. Um, whereas complementary alternative medicines, all right, are optimized to make you feel good, all right? Are optimized for, for to, 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 to be appealing. Um, then it's going to be very difficult to sort of somehow educate people or something, you know, to, to do anything really when, when, you know, like if, if, if you're focused on being popular and you make that your, your main criteria, then you're going to be, you're going to come up with a product that is more appealing than, than a healthy option. So yeah, I think it's the same thing with, with academic, whatever knowledge um, versus these pretenders because they, they make it their business. I mean, apart from the cast, they spent, it's a full-time job for them. <laughs> Right, like those names. Someone was asking about statisticians, right? Trevor Hasey, um, Leo Bryman, um, 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 David Donahoe. Donahoe, yeah. What, what did I say? You, you, uh, there's, there's a fellow called Arthur Dent who posted a load of questions, which are just the names of. Oh, they're in the questions. <laughs> <laughs> I posted that in the questions. Okay, those are my, those are my, that's my in the chat. <laughs> um, but yeah, like those guys, right? They, they're not on Twitter, right? They don't have a podcast. They don't, um, whatever, spend their time networking with with people like Elon Musk or whatever they're doing real serious shit and you've never heard of them, you know, because why would you, there's no reason for you to have. Um, um, so it's always going to be someone like that sad who writes a popular book. That sounds. Cause it's such an important point. All right. The people who are doing the most important work are not generally speaking on Twitter. They're not generally speaking in the news. They're not writing and speaking in some incredibly compelling manner. All right. That which is important is usually not compelling is not entertaining, it's not in the news. And that which is in the news is usually trivial. It's really good, that's easy to sort of, that feels compelling. You know, you can see lots of applications in your own life. You can see how, wow, this is gonna help me invest in the stock market. You know, it, it's got all of the features to it. I'm, I'm not saying it's, I'm not even saying that's uh, Phillips books are necessarily bad. They're not, I don't think, Black Swan was not a bad book. But it is, like any of those popular books, it's, it's written for, for popular appeal. Um, whereas these guys are actually pushing forward the boundaries of statistics. And if you actually wanted to know something true about how statistics or reasoning with probability and machine learning works, you're better off asking those guys. But yeah, so it's just the nature of the world, I'm afraid. I don't think it's anything special about gurus or the internet or whatever. I think it's just, it's just human culture. Yeah. That's why you should be skeptical of me and Mark. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, we, you should have you. You really should be. <laughs> like, the why, are I think... why are we doing it? Because we're, well, we're no, it... and we should, I should be doing it. I've got statistics I want to be doing today. I'm doing a factor analysis for a colleague who, um, so he's a dingo, re he's a canine and dingo researcher. Um, he's really into canines. And, um, and it's quite cool, actually, Chris. He was telling me about how he was um, spending time, anyway, out, out, out back with Bending indigenous time. rangers and stuff. 
Um, I, I, anyway, yeah, anyway. Yeah, no, I just, I, whenever you say, you know, I, I work with a dingo, like yeah. blah, blah, blah. I'm just like, is that, is that Australian slang or is it actually like a, a dingo? No, no, dingo. I, dingo. Yeah, he, he is a dingo researcher. That's, yeah. that isn't possibly the most Australian job that exists. <laughs> he was just a wrangler that would do it. But I, I feel that the, like, not to defend us, defend us. I can't hear you anymore. Wait, you've gone quiet. I can see, oh, now I can see on. you, but I can't hear you. What's going on? The world is a confusing. Yeah, great. Uh, like, trying to run a quality was, show. If I was going to do that, I'd do it, you know, mainly in academic terms and like in, in papers and then maybe talk yeah. about it. But he wants us to, you know, fireball the, the like hot theories. And yeah, that's the kind of, the fact that somebody wouldn't want to do that doesn't seem to uh, be a possibility in that world. Yeah. You know, it's true. And like mediocre is a, is a relative term. I mean, like, like 90, you know, 99% more of academics are mediocre. Those, those, those names that I mentioned there are like, are like sort of people that really stand out, but unless you're one of them, then, um, then you're, you're still pretty mediocre. My, my, my H index isn't, isn't, it's pretty good. It's bigger than Chris's. Um, it's, <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's not too shabby from, from academics, but I still definitely, cause, but yeah, like, like Chris said, like if I was to talk about gurus or narcissism or any of that stuff or complementary alternative medicine or anti-vaccination attitudes, despite having done some research in that area, of course, I'm going to be referring to the 99% of research that was done by other people, not me, right? Because there's probably a thousand people in every one of those speciality areas. But I think that that the random shit that you've done is is like the linchpin, you know, the smoking gun that, that just eliminates everything. No. So actually, I, like, you know, like I said, I think I think our um, I think our barometer, even though it's pretty casual, <laughs> we're not treating it like a research project, but it is informed by our knowledge of, of the literature. So that's that's what you can hope for, I think. That's But this guy is telling that when you see someone that presents themselves as this 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 idea that I've got this thing that I've this product I have it isn't informed by by the broader literature. It's actually actually me. I discovered all of this, all of this stuff. Everything I know about narcissism or vac or anti vaccination attitudes, I figured it out. Right? Then that's you know they're bullshit. They have to. I want, I do want to say as well that we had a conversation about but I'm sure you remember where you were telling me excitedly about like a novel insight that you felt you had had, like, you know, connecting theoretical things. <laughs> and if you recall, my response was to say, it's not novel. It's completely mundane in my field, this, this one. So, uh, it happens, like, all, happens all the time. Yeah. When you, when you actually check, you have this great idea. You're like, what about this? You know? And then, then you go and do a literature search and you go, ah, oh, shit. Or, this your was, or your co-host can tell you with a big freaking cheesy grin on his face. Do you remember what, do you remember what it was, Chris? What was it? Uh, it was just, like, I recall that it was essentially what the cultural evolution people in my field talk about, like the, the kind of intersection of the evolutionary nature of the mind and the cultural input. Like, I can't remember the specific of it, but I remember thinking all the cultural evolutionary oh, that's, yeah. you know, say the, exactly what you just described, which was like, I think it was acknowledging the importance that like neuro chemistry is playing in the way that culture is uh, like, oh yeah yeah I yeah yeah i remember yeah I, I, actually i think in that case i wasn't claiming it as a as a brilliant new insight it was more i was trying to i was trying to explain how i was a fan of <laughs> evolutionary psychology but also whatever and you know some even yeah but you know what what you what you're pointing at chris is that i think psychologists in general haven't thought about culture uh, um as carefully as as they probably should have so they get they, they they still fall into the trap of seeing it as like a dichotomy. Um, yeah. They get very excited about like the, uh, uh, culture <laughs> when when anthropologists just never shut up about it. So what that <laughs> like culture? What's what's this? What's this? <laughs> this is stuff that happens outside of an experimental uh, laboratory. Uh, I, I understand there's some culture out there somewhere, but what well, was? Oh God, there was something that like came into my mind, but it's gone out now. Uh, but it, in, in any case, my, I'm not accusing you of having. Oh yeah, I remember it now. The, like I I did a. Um, like a mini viva for a student in the final year of their PhD. 
And in their thesis, they had a section where they talked about the novel contribution of their thesis. And <laughs> I, I, and essentially it was a repackaging of Ableton beliefs or like possessions. So I pointed out that this is not a novel insight because there's a developed literature on like uh, people using ideas for signaling. Now the thing is, um, academics love to do that. They love to tell other academics, actually, let me help you out by pointing you in that direction. Yes. Yeah, because it shows that you knew about something and like it kind of steals the idea. So I, I, that is a flip side as well, but like that's that's the kind of bizarre pleasure because we, we got feedback on um, one person on the uh, Patreon was pointing out that there is a there is an issue with like academic culture valuing valorizing harsh criticism in a way that can be unpredictable and hurtful at times and like kick out people who otherwise might make very relevant contributions just because the culture is a bit um, it, it can slip over into abuse and stuff like that and it can't like they're completely right so that like it shouldn't be i i seen stuff in japan uh some labs that was like you know had people in in tears and, and stuff like that and it, it did feel unnecessary uh in lots of ways but like that's the thing there's always the you know, there's good parts and there's bad yeah. points and, and this this tendency to like i think the tendency towards point out that you're a part of a a bigger like ecosystem of researchers and, and so on and that you're not you know the lone einstein i actually think that's a good part that keeps people in in check so yeah hmm. yeah yeah, I, I think so too. Yeah, we could talk for hours. This is the mistake they all make. Everybody can't help but make that in, in attacking what these people do in the popular sphere on academic grounds and saying, actually, the way academia does it is it's just better. I'm sorry. Uh, it's more careful. It's more rigorous. It, it's, it, it's more evidence-based. Um, it's not to say it's perfect. It's far from perfect. It, it's always highly imperfect. Just to give you an example of this, which is that the, um, yeah, it's often boring. If it's boring, then more likely to be true. <laughs> um, and um, the, like a good example is the research culture in, in the specific field of gambling, gambling research, right? There, the sociology of it is this, right? You've got the situation where you've got this massive gambling industry, right? It is making just squillions of dollars. And a lot of that, those dollars are going to government um, in, in tax revenue. Um, so there is, and then, you and then you have academics who generally sit outside that. So you have these different- Yeah, that's a great point. If it's boring, it's more likely true than if it's uh, exciting. God forbid that I should, I should break my no fap. God forbid. Different sort of groups, right? You have a group of people that are, uh, researchers that, that take money will, will take research funding from um, various agencies might be connected to the gambling industry to one degree or another and not surprisingly they have a rather laid-back individually focused kind of view and then you have kind of the the, the um, activist kind of researchers who have gotten really uh, upset and outraged about about the, the state of affairs and have sort of become like activist researchers right and that they have a very very, very strong views about how terrible gambling is and how we desperately need more gambling regulation and they have that you know obviously more kind of a left-right kind of kind of Hey, so you can get some aloe vera at the Tenham Garden Center. I want to tell you just my own personal experience with this lotion. It soothes, it cools, and it moisturizes, right? And it's fair dinkum, dinky dye, Aussie. So the Australian language has been influenced by Chinese terms. So fair dinkum, fair is obviously an Anglo-Saxon word, but dinkum is a Chinese word. And being gung-ho, right, that's a Chinese word. So we've got uh, quite a few Chinese words. But anyway, back to aloe vera. Let's get dinky dye, fair dinkum. It's Australian. This is organic, organically grown aloe vera in its purest form. All right. It's 98% pure inner leaf gel and it's bursting with natural goodness. And it soothes and, and caresses. It's calming. It's soothing. It's moisturizing and it's hydrating to the skin. This is nature's own skin balm, spin skin balm, direct from the leaf. Direct from the leaf, guys. 
I can assure you, it soothes, it cools, and it moisturizes. Um, dichotomy there. Um, a lot of the research is actually good, actually very good, but I have seen stuff that is terribly bad, and I, I think it... And it's only $8.95 at the Tanner Garden Center. So get some now. It is susceptible to them over-egging it to some degree because they because they feel so strongly that it's a bad thing. And then you have people like me, but we, we, try, to, we try to follow the evidence. But I have to, have to admit, over the years, I have become... Um, probably a bit more biased myself. So you have that's the, that's the, the political sociology bleeds into it. It's not immune. It's not like there's this blue church of of, of orthodoxy or or people that are like just perfectly dispassionate and whatever. There's all kinds of different factions going on. But there is an undercurrent that links to, through, through all of it, which is which which is where credibility is does not rest on how on public popular popularity or how catchy your, your, your slogans are. There is at some there's a fair bit of reality testing and and I do see people. Um, Basically, changing their changing their stances over over the years as the evidence is coming in. So, at, at least in the empirical fields, this is this is in the empirical field. Yeah, yeah, yeah don't, don't... Look, God forbid, God forbid, you you break your NoFap commitment. I I definitely don't encourage that. It's uh, it's going to take you away from God. It's going to detract from your prayer life. But if God forbid, right after the fact, you you are going to break your your NoFap, then. I recommend doing it with 98% pure aloe vera because it soothes, it cools, and it moisturizes. And it, it reduces that kind of icky, debilitated feeling by at least 50% with its 98% uh, pure gel straight from the leaf balm. It's, it's nature's own skin spin balm because it, it's calming, soothing, Moisturizing and hydrating to the skin. Don't ask me about the arts and humanities or philosophers. Matt and I observe philosophers in the wild element on, on Twitter and just shake our heads, even the ones we like. <laughs> yeah. I, can, I, can I have another rant about that, Chris? I've ranted to you about this, but I'll, I want to rant to these guys as well, if you don't mind. Real, I'll, I'll try to keep it short, though, which is that one of the things I see from philosophers um, out there is that there's this sort of despair. They kind of characterize the academic system as being like, like a handmaiden to like the neoliberal power structures, and they talk about elite overproduction. You know, these are sort of lefty type type academic types like this hugely pessimistic view of the academy and, and maybe it's got something to do with them coming from ivy league places or the oxbridge type thing maybe it's got something to them to do with them working in these like fields that are like philosophy or english literature or history or something like that um whereas i was at a graduation ceremony a few days ago because i had a phd student who was, who was graduating she, she did her phd uh, on vaccine skepticism and the other phds that were getting awarded there were um, people that were looking at viruses in um, in avocados. We grow a lot of avocados around here. Um, a bunch of other sort of sciencey type things. Um, all- right, this is Matt Brown. He is at the prestigious University of Central Queensland, which is just up the road from me. Right, good old Matt, just up the road. I might go say good day. All my PhD students have gone on to have full time jobs as as researchers. Um, you know, just just working uh, or or academics. Um, and as all the undergraduates were coming out and getting the things, you get people getting graduated in in nursing, getting graduated in in justice administration to become policemen, in um, in in engineering, and a whole bunch of stuff. And you know, this is these people are going to walk straight into jobs. Like there is there is a shortage, a massive shortage of qualified, skilled people in an area like this. And and it's you know it's good, it was nice. You see their families clapping, and these young people for the most part very very happy to be to, to be getting out there. And it's like look, this is this is what a university does, right? It is it is like this is its business. I don't like both sort of the sort of lefty kind of philosopher type despair over it being this this just mere instrument of some neo-capitalist thing or um, 
and the people like Jordan Peterson saying that it's all just a corrupt kind of thing with a whole bunch of wokeists, you know, mentally masturbating to various types of intersectionality. Like that's not what, maybe, I don't know, maybe that's what goes on in the Ivy League or in Oxbridge now, but that's not what goes on where, where I work, right? Yeah, at, at Oxbridge, at the Ivy Leagues, at Harvard and Yale, they're all yanking themselves furiously in some satanic panic, you know, rubbing, rubbing it out with 98% pure, you know, aloe vera. But at the University of Central Queensland, when we graduate a PhD, man, we graduate them into fair dinkum jobs. Now, we've got something wholesome going here. Um, I just wanted to say that. That was, that, was... That, that was beautiful. That was really beautiful. Thanks, Matt. I, I, I appreciate it. All right. So decoding the gurus on Patreon, absolutely worth level three, right? Tier three, the highest tier, $10 a month. So much content. Central right party, um, and they're a bunch of assholes. Oh, so. oh he doesn't like the conservative um, coalition. So yeah, in I don't Australia. Know. I mean, what did he talk about? I got an article here. He talked about talk about, about John Peterson um, speaking to some right wingers in the magazine. And I did like a very cursory digging because I, I saw he got some criticism for um, the kind of amount of money. So this is Chris Kavanaugh talking about Bjorn Lomberg, who believes in climate change but is much less hysterical about it uh, and funding and stuff and he he said in some interview like all of our funding for my institution is like public so you can go look so i was like okay and had a look and uh, i pointed this out on Twitter, but he, he was receiving like his institution was receiving like say it was receiving a million his salary was like six hundred thousand of that or seven hundred thousand. so i pay five dollars a month for the parrot room mickey carlson robert wright i spent nine dollars a month for radix journal on substack and i spend ten dollars a month for level three of decoding the gurus on Patreon. Okay, and you're just like, that's like, what is that? That is just just people paying you <laughs> to to like to be you. And I was thinking, like, what's the equivalent? Like, where are the climate change scientists? Who... And did Luke discuss the book, The Holocaust Industry: Reflections on the Exploitation of Jewish Suffering, a 2000 book by Norman Finkelstein? So Norman Finkelstein frequently makes great points, but he's so hyperbolic. It just feels like he's shouting at you. So yeah, there, there are good points in there. I you know, welcome Norman Finkelstein's contributions to public discourse. He's just a little too over the top uh, for, for my tastes. But yeah, he makes his points in a very hyperbolic, strident way. He's like the he's like the half Galician of this genre. Who have that right? Like have an institution where seventy or eighty percent of income is just a six figure or uh, like high yeah, six figure. That's right, six figure salary for them, like close to a million. It, it isn't right. Like yeah. and people point out like the head of the, the uh, you know World Wildlife Fund or whatever. But like even those people who are getting paid a lot for being in top positions there, the like level of income of the whole institution is way yeah. higher than that. It's like yeah, it's not seventy yeah. percent. No. So. No. But, but the point in mentioning him is, of course, Jordan Peterson has had him on. Of course, Jordan Peterson cites him and other experts like him. And he, you know, they talk about the corrupting influence of, you know, the scientific consensus and blah, blah, blah. The kind of stuff Jamie was also talking about with, like, COVID. But they never yeah. look at the, the incentives. Yeah. yeah, if you were genuinely concerned about incentives and stuff. Yeah. And Abel says the American Jewish establishment, according to Norman Finkelstein, exploits the memory of the Nazi Holocaust for political and financial gain. To further Jewish and Israeli interests, the Holocaust industry has corrupted Jewish culture and the authentic memory of uh, suffering. Well, I think it's just human nature here. Like, we all exploit everything we can get. Like, uh, I've heard of blokes who exploit an interest in, like, Czechoslovakian poetry to get laid. Um, Galicia, tell us more about your techniques with uh, Central European women. 
I mean, we all exploit you know, pretty much everything we can get to get as much as we can get with as little effort as possible. And, and when you encounter that rare person who isn't exploiting and manipulating, say, as much as average or as much as you do, then you know, be grateful for them. You know, feel a sense of happiness and joy and let your soul rejoice that uh, you've met someone who, who's uh, minimizing the exploitation angle and instead turns in you know, fair dinkum hard work. Um, yeah. on, just, just a quick one. I'm going to slip this into the agenda, um, even though we should get back to the questions and invite people up. I've got to mention bloody Elon Musk. I've really come to hate that guy. Like I've gone from being obl pretty oblivious to him. To... Yeah, okay. He's not a fan of Elon Musk. We get it. Let's move on. Oh, it's not fit and proper. I mean, it's bad enough from some rando, right, on, online. Okay. But, you don't like you know, Elon like Musk. Con we get it. Adam, have you fought this out? <laughs> so I, I, I'm picking it as a movie adaptation of the um, oh. the question and somebody to like be completely bamboozled by it, like as if con men have never been asked uh, directly a a question. And it, it's the same thing I've noticed when people are interviewing people and they ask us, or you know, what's the question we need to ask in order to like to be properly critical? And you're like, it doesn't work like that because you cannot just have a like a single question because most of them are very good at deflecting. Like uh, so, but yeah, that was yeah, that was just yeah. I mean, as as um, Jenny Wheel did, for instance, like continually, that's standard. Yeah, but yeah, it is insanely naive. Like, imagine thinking that you could just go to Andrew Tate and go, Andrew, I mean, you know, and then and ask him some direct question about what he thinks about women or whether something might be bad for women or whatever, and think that Andrew Tate will just go, Wow, yeah, I I never thought about it like that. I I yeah, this really, this really like it hasn't, <laughs> but it's never happened yet with Lex. That's the thing. He's done hundreds and hundreds of things, and he's. He's never like the people that that work. Lex on, Friedman. I, I seen him interview like a game about. developer, right? Lex um, who made like Elder Scrolls. And it was very interesting because just talking to a game developer and then starts asking them, you know, personal questions and stuff as well. And it's it's interesting because you probably have never heard a game developer discuss their personal lives. Um, but that's the difference between like asking Ben Shapiro about something because Ben Shapiro does know the criticisms of him. He does have a whole set of like a whole internal cognitive network of explanations and justifications for what he does. So nothing that Lex asks is hard. And in the same way, Eric Weinstein did an interview with um, who was that guy? The guy who runs Project Veritas, James O'Keefe. And he presented it as like, you know, a tough a tough taking him to the, the cleaners about, you know, his tactics. And it, and it was not that. It was just like, it was asking him, you know, do you ever, are you ever concerned about the ethics? Do you ever think about, you know, the people that you might affect and, and stuff? And like, and so of course he had, you know, like kind of stock answers and he he dwelt, and then he, in the end, he, he posted up saying it was his favorite interview because it was such, you know, pushed him so hard. And you're like, no, that's your favorite interview because it looks like it's pushing you, but it's just giving you the floor, you know? Uh, yeah. So. yeah. Yeah. Anyway, gives you, gives me, I keep saying this, but it gives me more respect for just the old fashioned profession of journalism. Journalists who actually, who actually do that. Um, but I, I, I can't do it. Like, I, it's not a skill that I have. And it's just something that you need to be a professional at and you need to really focus on doing and, yeah, this is the bit, Chris, where this this whole personal network of personal connections, and, and we've seen it, we've even experienced this personally, where people like Danny, or many of them like like him, are like looking to kind of connect with us and sort of, you know, that's that's what it, that's how people operate in this social network sphere. Um, but those, but any kind of personal human relationship like that is actually antithetical to the task of doing a hard hitting interview. So Helen Lewis talking to Jordan Peterson, they did not become friends after that. You know, they no. didn't. She's his enemy, they, actually. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, Helen Bryan. Oh right, and, <laughs> Helen Bryan, why do you hit me? Yeah. And uh, but whereas politicians, like old-fashioned you know, politicians in Australia get, and in the UK too, get asked tough questions by journalists all the time, and they know that that's the journalist's job, and the journalist knows that the, that the politician is going to try to deflect and try to avoid and so on, and they they do the the dance. But this 
his whole sphere is like childish and naive uh, and yeah. also cynical at the same time it's, it's terrible it's it's i i feel that one of the things that can't be stressed enough is how uh like the charity and uh, cynicism is absolutely not applied consistency and consistently in this ecosystem so you will have absolutely immediate cynicism towards any anything critical of elon for example now um and you know like disregard of anything that appears in the new york times or stuff like that and um and then you will have complete credulity for like you know the tidy and very wise threads on the twitter files so it's it's just i mean it's, it's not a novel insight it's just like um you know noting that people are inconsistent and and partisan but it's it is very frustrating to deal with and especially when you have all those people that are not expert in appearing to offer like detailed research and like these very long threads you know the alexandros marinos types where superficially it looks like they've done the deep dive and have you know critically evaluated the evidence and here's the thing but actually it may as well just be like loads of hearts drawn around pictures of elon um <laughs> so it's it, it is fundamentally the same content just dressed up differently yeah that's the theme, isn't it? It's sort of fake. Like it's like these these softball palsy interviews dressed up as a hard hitting interview. Uh, interview. The these like deep dive things, um, whereas in actual fact, it's just a bunch of a bunch of random conspiratorial facts googled in half an hour. Um, and people like Breton Heather pretending to be scientists. Like, yeah, there just seems to be like a like a dumbification of everything, where 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 a fake versions of real things are being presented, and people seem to be taking them at face value. Like, ah. man, have you paid attention to the Twitter files? Uh, I've tried to. No, not really. I've, I've seen it. I've seen. I'm trying to avoid it. Because that is that is just impressive to me as well. Like you know, it there could be some things in it that you might be interested in, right? Like you know, the, why specifically the band lives up to TikTok or like what what it was, right? What specific decisions? But all of it is exactly what you would have anticipated, which is they're looking at things, debating how you apply the rules, and when there's a higher profile account, it is not a random moderator who takes the decision, right? Like, and But that's presented as, like, revelations. It, even the notion that they would have, like, that higher-ups would have a say on whether Trump, Trump's account was suspended after January 2nd, you're like, but that was all in the open, or, I mean, in the open insofar as, of course, that was an executive. Okay, so decoding the gurus behind the Patreon paywall, they did a show on it's always sunny in philadelphia and it's kind of funny hearing these guys uh, struggle with human nature right because being on the left you know, these blokes have a hard time you know coming to terms with human nature not being basically good so the left views human nature as basically good and then gets corrupt by society the right has the opposite perspective that people are born not basically good and then society to varying degrees, is able to inculcate a more pro-social direction. So here are the decoding the gurus, a couple of center lefties talking with Dave, David Bizarro, another, another bloke on the left, about the TV show It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Even the bad characters were like people, they were still wholesome, right? You know, like yeah, Dwight. Absolutely. So that, that struck me as like a different... So, yeah, he's talking here about the difference between the British and the American versions of The Office. So the British TV is much darker. Australian TV is much darker. Australian and British films are much darker than American films. So you can look at the British version of The Office. It's a much darker show than the American version of The Office. Also, in American TV shows, people who do drugs or immoral forms of sex, such as adultery, they have to get punished very quickly. While in British TV shows, such as kids, uh, they can go a whole season without getting punished for their wickedness. Pull it after a couple of seasons, and they really should. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's got uh, a cult following. It's has it got good. the same sense of humor? You, this is what you think. The, the like, it's always sunny. A similar vibe. 
Uh, no, it's it's different. It's just a good example of how sort of diverse, I guess. I hate that word, but it, it yeah. is. It is. You it hate is. diversity. You're always really. Cast looks pretty white to me. I gotta say, as I'm looking. At it. <laughs> what's the name of that short, the short hairy guy? He's he's very. Galifianakis. Galifianakis. It's got Galifianakis in it. How can it yeah. not be good? Trust me, right. it's good. Right. That's Dave. The thing I felt with it's always sunny, and this is probably a bias. Is like you know, there's lots of, especially now. I think like things have definitely changed a bit. Like you know, curb your enthusiasm and that kind yeah. of stuff is is like it's very witty and satirical. But I always thought that you know. The British version of The Office versus the American version of The Office was a good example of the contrast because British yeah. American, or British version of The Office was like dark, right? Yeah, it, right. It, had, it had ugly people yeah. in, in an office and like the characters were, you know, they were bad. They weren't, they weren't even really redeemable in lots yeah. of ways. I mean, right. and then the American office, it had even the bad characters were like people, they were still wholesome, right? Yeah. You know, like yeah, yeah, Dwight. Absolutely. So that, that struck me as like a difference. But with It's Always Sunny, Matt and I both, when we watched the first season and the first season, is a bit of an outlier in comparison yeah. to the other ones. But the thing that sh- kind of shocked us was it goes hard, right? Like, I think the, the first episode was the gang gets racist and they were kind of <laughs> mimicking slave auctions and stuff, like trying to size up people in the dome queue by, oh, this guy looks strong. And, and I was like, what the? Like, this seems unusually not PC for yeah. my view of, like, American comedy. And I was kind of wondering how they didn't get in more trouble <laughs> for the stuff that they were doing. I subsequently found that they did get in a little bit of trouble, but like, but not as much as they should, given cultural yeah, sensitivities. No. I mean, what trouble did they get into? I know, I know that they're like Hulu took down some of the blackface episodes. And, that's that's the yeah. main thing is the like the blackface episodes, and they we I've subsequently consumed the podcast where they talk about previous episodes. Well, and, I haven't, but my wife has. She's an avid listener. Uh, it's very good. It's very good, and it's very. It's also very nice to find out that they're very like in some ways they are just versions of the character. You know, like. Right. It's it's like it's not based on nothing, and uh, right. but but the they them talking about earlier episodes where some of the jokes are you know close like there's episode where they just say retard all the time and they they do, they they're like they're now more you know feeling that that they wouldn't do that now and maybe they shouldn't have done it then but but they also highlight that like you know those those episodes that got took down with the blackface ones yeah. there's so much worse stuff in the other episodes that are up and I I felt like that because that, like that episode I'm talking about. I felt that one is much more closer to the bone in like racial insensitivity jokes <laughs> than than the one where they parody Lethal Weapon. <laughs> like, yeah, right, right. The Lethal Weapon parody is not uh, is not even trying to be uh, racist, right? It's just the the gag is is simply that they're making a shitty Lethal Weapon remake, and obviously there's no there's no black person to play the the Danny Glover role, so they switch it off back and forth. See, like, because to me, I, I didn't actually get into the Black Lives Matter, but, you know, there is this thing where, you know, um, uh, what's it called? Tropic Thunder, where yeah. Robert Downey, you know, did Blackface, but was was marking it, right? That, yeah. that was the whole the whole thing. I That movie was very good to me. And it was very clear. This is this is making fun of, yeah. of this thing that happened. And and now I, I've since realized, learned that, like, Tropic Thunder, people are a bit, you know, they're unsure about it. And Robert Downey Jr. is sensitive about talking about it and stuff. And I was like, but it's it's obviously... It's obviously lampooning that it's it's so, yeah. but it, it seems to have become like a really, like it's just now a complete red line in the American yeah. zeitgeist. Like yeah. you, you can't even mock it. It's become sacred in the way that that you you is resistance to um, levels, right? Yeah. Like it's yeah. Resistant. It's like, saying, it's like saying bomb on a plane. You can't say that you don't have a bomb on the plane. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Um, but look, I mean, like Chris obviously is just attracted to the culture war flashpoints. No, you I just can't help yourself, can you, mate? Um, I, I want to ask you guys, because we could talk about all the funny scenes and they're always playing through my head, but we shouldn't do that. That would be boring. That's right. You shouldn't. We told <laughs> you not to do that. We're going to do it a bit. We're going to do it a bit. But my question, so what do you reckon is below that? So yes, it's very edgy. Yes, it's all about how they're such terrible people, maybe sociopaths or whatever. And that's where a lot of the humor comes from. But 
what do you guys think? Can you think of anything about it that makes it good at like a deeper level, apart from, you know, pressing those culture war or those right. non-PC things or being, or just the thrill of, of, you know, being a fly on the wall with these terrible, terrible people. What about it is interesting to you um, in a deeper sense? Yeah. So uh, I'll jump in and say, I actually don't, I think that the, to the extent that it's, it's um, successful, it's not because at all, it's like dealing with the hot button issues. They have some episodes like that, but that can't, that is That's not. Actually, those are worse. Yeah. Those are not like when, when they try to tackle some of that stuff, right. It's when the, when the humor is incidentally racist, it's kind of funny, but, but if they try to make it about that, it's, it's yeah. I, so I have, I, I've given this a lot of thought and I, I think that there is um, something that is deeply uh, attractive uh, to watch from afar about people who are completely and totally selfish uh, individuals. And my my theory that I'm working on, as we speak, <laughs> is that um, you, you both may have, I don't know, talked to your students about uh, psychopathy at some point. I don't know if you've ever... Had, they, people love that stuff. People are fascinated by, by it. And, and I've always thought that it's because what a psychopath seems to have is the um, a, a kind of freedom that we don't have, that maybe we wouldn't even want, but nonetheless one that's kind of fun to think about. Um, and that is the freedom from actually caring about any other human being, right? Like, you know, we live in, as they say, we live in a society. <laughs> we we have to uh, treat other people a certain way or else we'll get in a lot of trouble. And here we have this fantasy play of, of a cast of characters who somehow manage to maintain a social connection to each other, but be absolutely 100% uh, egotistical, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's not what makes it funny, but I think that's what makes it the central, whatever, the central conceit of the show uh, is that. I mean, yeah. to some extent, Seinfeld is that, but this is like mm. Seinfeld on, on crack. Um, yeah. On, yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel the same way that, you know, actually. So what I find funny here is you've got three lefties who are unable to admit that human nature is not basically good. And so they, they view the, the characters on this hilarious TV show, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, as the exception. Right? This is you know, unusual to have, you know, such wicked, evil, self-centered people. But the characters on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia are very representative of, of of people we, we constantly interact with. So if you're on the right, you are at peace, you're at ease, you recognize that people are not more basically good, and instead you have a focus on developing institutions such as family, community, church, synagogue, that uh, morally elevates people from the sewer, which is the natural human condition. But here you've got three lefties you know, trying to avoid facing the fact that human nature is not basically good. You know, I think it's really mostly the later episodes that kind of, on some occasions, try to delve into like the bathroom issue or uh, like when it's okay to say certain words and stuff. And those are the weaker episodes yeah. to me, like when they try to really extract a moral message. I, I much prefer the episodes where it kind of ends with them acknowledging nothing was learned and nobody <laughs> yeah. is good in this. And I, I think my, you know, when we were talking about their podcast, right, and the fact that, like, you know, obviously they're not terrible people; they're very thoughtful and funny people, but but they are like taking elements of their personality and like kind of unleashing it if you were just an ego monster if you just let the worst most and just dialed everything up what would it be like and it's it, i think part of the reason it's so enjoyable is because there's when people are poking fun and they are doing it you know self-aware like they are so self-aware of their flaws as people and they're you know they talk very openly about how actors are all narcissists and they just all want attention all the time and, and they're kind of joking at each other about how they they all have these psychological problems that make, make them need to you know get attention but i think it's it's that that they are able to use that to make the characters display like these deep fragilities and these kind of clear, you know, like you say, psychopathic tendencies, but it's, you're in on the joke because like, yeah. obviously someone has constructed the show to, to showcase that. So like, there's a, there's a, a vicarious enjoyment at the terribleness and everybody being in that 
this is a comedy, right? They're, right. they're terrible. And that's, I, so I think that, you know, it, it is the very surface thing, but the terribleness of the people and the enjoyment of just watching them fuck each other over mm. is, is yeah. it's like, that's the main thing for me. Well, I, those are both very good points. I agree with both of you very much, but I'm going to go a little bit deeper. Collective <laughs> <laughs> like, unconscious. Dying under, going from the completely opposite hemisphere. Yeah, as, you, is, as you argued. <laughs> this is like a kangaroo like yeah. <laughs> move where you one up each other. <laughs> so that's true. But, um, you know, if they were entirely um, horrible, narcissistic, um, psychopathic people, um, then that wouldn't be enough, even with the, the comedy and so on. Have you noticed how each of the characters at various points does show sort of vulnerability and humanity? Yeah. And it does kind of show an impulse to change and be better. Um, you know, um, Charlie gets sad because he has to go and kill the rats and he's feeling empathy for the poor. <laughs> yeah. right? And the rest of them just say, get back down there. <laughs> right. Um, and, um, you know, Dennis, you know, you know, everyone, as everyone knows, he's this, um, you know, wonderful, wonderful portrayal of this, of this, of this narcissistic sociopath. But at, at points, he, like, he talks about having this, like, you know, deep hole in his heart that needs to be filled and, and, and so on. And, and, uh, his and, God and, hole. And, <laughs> yeah, that's it. And, and, and the rest of them, again, of course, straight away, you know, you know, slap him around. And, and, and so they have this awful codependent um, uh, relationship where they're preventing each other from ever changing or, or evolving or, or getting better. And right. they, they're all desperate for success and recognition in the world. Like they want Paddy's Pop to be successful. They want to make a movie. They want to do these things. But they can't because they, they can't change. They, um, it, so this is talking about the TV show. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. I think it's the funniest show on TV. Funniest show in the past 10 years. Even though they have the impulse to change. And so for the, the sort of cool thing about it um, for me sort of sitting underneath it is that they're all kind of living in this like eternal moment, that it, which just keeps going, like this slightly buzzed yeah. eternal moment. There's, yeah, I like what one... you said about them. Sorry, them all keeping each other down. It's a constant. It's a, it's a, you're right. They show humanity and we probably, it would probably not work if they never showed uh, those vulnerabilities. But it's as if, like as if uh, nobody can grow um, because they're all in some sort of twisted, <laughs> twisted codependent relationships where if any one of them grows, they would realize that they probably shouldn't have these people around. <laughs> yeah. 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 The, Sorry, the only thing I was thinking, Matt, and it, it kind of calls back to part of the why. I, I think it's much more common feeling in America that the people you're around are holding you down. So in Australia, there's much more veneration, respect for, for mateship. And so it's quite the, the rare Australian who complains that his mates are holding him down, that the people around him are holding him down. So America is much more respectful of, worshipful of the individual trying to be everything he can be and discarding, you know, anyone around him who holds him back. This is comparatively much less common attitude in Australia. I think it appeals so much is, you know, like and in collective states generally. Right? There are individualist cultures and there are corporate cultures. So compared to Japan and China, Australia is individualist. Compared to the United States, Australia is a corporate culture. Like I enjoyed Friends a lot when it, it came out, right? Like, and it's it's also like witty and sarcastic, right? But but there is this element of like, these are all beautiful people living in this like impossibly uh, like large apartment in, yeah. in the middle of uh, like, I don't know where it is, somewhere in New York, yeah, but yeah. Manhattan, right? But they it's always sunny it's a dive bar with people like living in rat infested houses and sleeping together and, and like i like the fact that it was focusing on this part of america and, and part of you know all societies that exists the kind of like you know not not like just people scraping by but like kind of lower class and uh and, and not reveling in that as being uplifting necessarily more <laughs> like there's there's just it like there's a lot of things about you know getting wasted and, and taking drugs being normalized and yeah. that that speaks to me <laughs> as a, as a yeah. like a a fun and, mirror of friends. Right. And I like, I, I feel like saying like, you know, if anybody's not watched this, don't be put off by the fact, like they're not just edgelords um, making no. risky comedy for the, for the sake of it. It's very important 
um, I think to uh, the character, it's, it's very important to understand that the characters, when they do, like when D like puts on Puerto Rican face and acts like Puerto Rican, the, the joke is that she is so self-involved that she herself cannot see how this is offensive. Yeah. That's the joke. Like the, the, the theme of the whole thing is that these people, when they need, when they need some self-knowledge the most, they fail, they fail <laughs> profoundly. And so, and, and the same with the joke about, about uh, doing the lethal weapon movies that one of them dresses up like Danny Glover is almost beside the point they think that they can make a good move. That's the joke. Like they really, really are like, Oh yeah, like this is, we should do that. Like they try to seek financing and they make a good movie. Like that's the joke. Like, yeah, completely agree. Like that's the thing. It's all character, it's all character based humor. And even though they do do a lot of sort of topical politically adjacent stuff, like for instance, you know, the gun, the gun issue, right. like it, they're not making any edgy comment about the actual issue. Right. It's just, yeah, it's just a, right. a stage for them to show how they, none of them did any research whatsoever. None of them understand the issue. And they just <laughs> not into it completely certain that they're right. Right. It's about them. It's always about them. You, yes. you know, yeah. In the, in the, in the narrow sense and in the meta sense it was really just about them um yeah i mean and it's important to the plot i love when danny devito came on in season two or whatever which mm. i was shocked that but but he was a fan but i love that that uh danny DeVito... i just think it's hilarious that uh these three lefties think that the behavior shown on it's always sunny in philadelphia is somehow the exception is aberrant in society that you know most people are not like this that this is you know a, an unusual group of sociopaths I think that the behavior and the selfishness displayed in this hilarious comedy, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, is more often true than not. So I'm beating the dead stick, but if you're a trad, right, you don't expect human nature to be basically good. DeVito's character um, allows them to bankroll some of these silly schemes, right? Like it was very important that somebody oh, yeah. somehow have access to <laughs> to money and of course danny devito's character frank is is uh, very wealthy but lives in squalor in what can only be described as like a tenement house from the early 1900s in new york you know like uh, just absolute squalor chooses to sleep on the same pullout sofa with charlie their relationship is actually one of my favorites yeah, yeah. yeah it's so good yeah like there's a, like like i said like that it works because it's so horrible they're so terrible but like with that relationship there's a there's a genuine there's a tenderness, warmth, tenderness that's the word yeah um, there's an aspect that relates to that that i'm curious what both of you like because there's there's episodes that are like more grounded especially in the earlier seasons things are a bit more grounded and it, it becomes more fantastical right like they they become able to survive things that, right. that they shouldn't and whatnot but but the like it goes sometimes into complete surrealness right like the the and some of the like ancillary characters like the mcpoyle family who are an antagonistic inbred family and like okay that's going to do it for me i'm going to the beach talk to you later bye bye <laughs> <laughs>